Welcome to Soundstage Insider, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the film and television industry. We're bringing you the visionary directors and producers, the talented cinematographers, editors, sound designers and more who really make the magic happen. We delve deep into their stories, their struggles and their triumphs. So let's go beyond the red carpet and discover a fascinating world of behind-the-scenes talent. Hello there, welcome to Soundstage Insider. Now today, we've got the first of two episodes this week, yes, this is a two-episode week, devoted to picture editing. And today's episode features Kelly Dixon and Josh Earl. Now between them, they've got an extraordinary resume of work under their belts already, but today we're leaning into their work on Obi-Wan Kenobi and talking more generally about the editing process that they both go through. I would definitely recommend searching out their IMDb profiles to see some of the incredible credits that they've worked on. Um, we talk a little bit about it in the episode two. So I'm excited for you to hear today's episode. Also check out Thursday's episode, which features an interview with the History of the World Part 2 picture editing team of Stephanie Philo and George Mandel, but we'll talk about them in more detail on Thursday's episode. So get ready for a very, very entertaining and educational interview with Kelly Dixon and Josh Earl, starting now. All right, so I am very excited to talk to you both today. Um, we're going to be talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi a little bit later, but to start off with, I'd love to know a bit about how you guys started out as editors, what that journey was like way back at the beginning of your journey. Okay, I never went to film school. I did. I had my sights on advertising. I wanted to write advertising copy. And uh, I came out to California and I couldn't, the, the way in was to get in the mailroom. And I couldn't get any mailrooms at all in any ad agencies. And uh, a cousin of mine set me up with an interview for MGM's mailroom. And so I figured, okay, you know, I'll, I guess I'll try the movie industry. But the movie industry was really um, pretty much populated by, you know, Nepo babies. A lot of, <laughs> you know, a lot of people getting in were, you know, their parents or their families worked in it. And so... Um, I got into the mailroom and then became a production assistant on a television show. And I really thought I wanted to be in camera, but at the time we were still on film and a lot of that equipment was really, really heavy. Um, so they weren't really hiring girls to be second assistants because they would have to load, you know, all this camera equipment and on trucks and stuff. And a lot of those guys were Nepo babies. They were nephews and sons of DPs and first assistants. So I started um, delivering scripts from the script supervisor to editing. And I was a journalism major in college, so I had done a little bit of editing, like news editing. So I sort of knew a little bit about it. And the guys that were editing the TV show taught me the system at the time, and um, they started giving me scenes to cut. And I started to realize that I didn't really want to be um, on the set in the rain and the snow and the elements and at four in the morning i would rather come in and be in the you know climate controlled uh editing rooms at you know nine or ten o'clock in the morning and stay you know into the evening um but what i also realized as well was that in post-production you tend to work you know months and months and months after production 
Um, and so I thought, well, I don't want to have to look for a job, you know, every three or four months, you know. And so I, I started to hang out there and I got really good at it. And the thing that I like to tell assistants now, especially is as far as I can tell, it's really the only place where you even in entry level job can spend a whole lot of time with above the line people, producers, directors, and you may have to go get their lunch, but they usually ask you to eat it with them. And then they start talking to you and you build relationships. You know, if you're, if you're good at talking to people, you can build relationships even from very, very early entry level position. Um, so that's how I got in. Yeah, I love that. Just drilling down very, very briefly before we go go to you, Josh. Were you passionate? Were you interested in film, but you just didn't think it was a path for you because you didn't have a rich relative who lived in LA? Or is that why you went the advertising, initially the advertising route? Yeah, I mean, I, I really, really like commercial art. Um, unfortunately, I'm not much of an artist, uh, a visual graphic artist at all. Um, I love looking at that stuff, but I'm not a good one. And for me, like, I thought that film school was kind of, you know, frivolous. I mean, you know, like I said, per, I grew up in the Midwest um, and in the South. And, you know, again, it was like, how do you get in? You get in, you know, by nepotism mostly. And I had no real relatives that I knew of at the time, you know, that were in the business. So I didn't really think about film school. I was like, it was more about like, well, what can you, you know, what are you going to spend money on in college that you can actually like recoup and, and make money? And I really like, I still like advertising, but I'm so glad I never became an ad writer. But, uh, but yeah, that that's pretty much it was that I just didn't think that it was a path for me. Right. Yeah. You know, and like a lucrative, like a realistic path. Well, clearly it was. <laughs> Looking at your yeah, IMDb I mean, says otherwise. My opinion now has changed. I mean, it's become a much different thing. Yeah. That the technology has changed. There's a lot more that you can do, you know, at home on your computer. Whereas then, you know, you couldn't, you know, there was not, you know, stuff to, you couldn't do that. I know I'm dating myself, but still, <laughs> you know, so that's, that was pretty much why. Cool. Okay, great. Josh, what about you? How did you get into this? this line of work similarly with Kel, it's like uh you know i didn't i didn't know it was possible to do this but i kind of set sights you know at one point just like tinkering with cameras and whatnot and i was like i'm gonna try and do that and it's odd but it's like i got in with uh logging so logging is more for you know it was for unscripted doc and still exists and just huge help on shows that have you know mass amounts of footage so I started there and I got the door shown to me by um, this guy, Tim Beers. Uh, you know, I'm from the East Coast and he's East Coast and his brother was just starting this company and, you know, they were they were out in L.A. and, and he was making TV and all this stuff. And I was like, can I come play one day? Let me come around. So they they sort of, uh, you know, oh, they showed me the door and then told me I had to walk through it. You know, they they uh, had me swinging a hammer, building some uh sound bays at the time just so i could get in and be near the avids and whatnot and then eventually i you know kept in touch with the post soup then got into logging then it was just non-stop you know who needs stuff done you know who needs help who wants to you know can i play you know what do you need can i help you in any way and you know it was a constant stream of who do i got to prove myself to like and show that i can do this stuff i want to keep going and i just picked up from editor and editor you know and new techniques, new ideas, and then brought my own and eventually grew as I met 
you know, people who may have been an, a, a PA or an AP eventually would go up and become a story producer, become this and that. Because my big break came with Unscripted. It was um, Deadliest Catch was one of my big, you know, shows that I worked on a lot. And we had 36,000 to 40,000 hours of footage making into, you know, 16 to 20 episodes of television. So I cut my teeth on this bear of a show with all these people and grew through that. You know, it was a big chunk of my year a lot of the time, but I would try to keep moving up and, and, you know, hone in skills and show people what I could do while I was jumping on and doing other shows elsewhere. So it really started as sort of a, a love for cameras, a love for playing with it and then realizing, oh my God, editing is kind of great. It's where you can sit and, and take the culmination of everybody's work. And then we can play with it and put it together. You know, it's like a lot less technical when it comes to, you know, oh, which lens do I use or, you know, uh, uh, how many people do I need on set? Uh, is the director happy? All that stuff. I'll make them happy in post. I'll, I'll do that in the bay. Um, it's just, you know, uh, it's kind of, you know, a place where I found it worked best for me. And one thing to say, like with Tell and with me and with everybody is that there's not really a direct route as to how to get started. I feel like everybody's story is different right? Like it's, it's, uh, paths that might've existed at one point don't exist anymore. There's new paths that we haven't even heard of. And it's like, people get jobs now and they, they're doing a, something that I haven't even thought of and they, and they can break in the industry. Really it's about, you know, relationships. You, you're building a network of people that want to work with you. So yeah, it's different. I've been interviewing people in all different areas of the film and TV world, and it's it's across skills. It's the same thing. It is relationships. It's people yeah. skills. Funnily enough, as you were speaking there, Josh, that it reminded me of, I spoke to Peggy Tashchin the other day, who is an editor for Only Murders in the Building and Shrinking. And uh, she started in reality too, in Unscripted, and uh, took a lot of the skills that she developed there, crafting things from almost nothing and the story skills yeah. of building. So I asked her this question. I'm interested to hear both of your perspectives on this. Are editors born or are they made? I got to say, I was looking at something the other day and it was kind of bugging me because, you know, most, I, I get a question a lot of times from people saying, well, you're an editor. So like, do you like analyze everything that you watch or, you know, can you even enjoy anything? And I'm like, I only notice it when it's bad. Right. right? I, I don't notice when the editing is like even passable, you know, it's, it's when it's bad, that that's when it really brings me out. And, and what I was noticing was that it was just very incredibly jarring. And I kept thinking, and it was like, they kind of kept going with the same sort of style. A lot of it was like actiony, but it wouldn't really finish. So it was really, it's like, well, what did, what did that knife actually look like, you know, going in or it's, it's hard to describe when you can't see it, but when you do see it, you know, it's like, what's going on? What are they trying to cover up here? But they're doing it like not only on in one sequence, they're doing it across the board. And either it's a style that somebody weird has adopted or that I kept going. And this is something that I don't tend to do very often, but I kept going, man, I'm wondering if the editor just isn't very talented, just does not see this. And I think that in that kind of way, I started to really think about it because I had to watch this thing. And I started to really think about, man, you know, is it just pure talent? Like, how do you teach this? And how do you teach how this is not, you know, I can't say it's not correct, 
because obviously it's somebody's the length of somebody's you know talent it's that's just as far as they can go or it's their own personal taste yeah and it's not like you can attack somebody's personal taste but i just started to think about like okay if i had my hands on this footage i i think that i could probably make this better i don't believe with the amount of footage that i saw i don't believe that this is the only way to accomplish this um it's almost like if you know you have a fight sequence and somebody goes to punch and you really never see the punch land or you never see the other side where it snaps back. You see the action just after right. this lands. And it goes on and on like this. And you're like, this is really jarring because I don't think you're either trying to cover up for something, but I just don't believe that the footage is that bad. And I guess that that's a long-winded way of saying, I think a lot of it comes from experience over and over and practice a lot of practice and seeing a lot of footage and really starting to become very resourceful in how you do things like i got the my first opportunity to edit professionally was on breaking bad and i always say that you know i got really lucky on that first of all because the writing was great and the footage was great but i also had producers who were really really wanting to see what was possible. And so I got to start there and I got to try a lot of things and get good at a bunch of them. So I got a lot of practice in on, and you know, then I started to do things like pull frames out or jam a couple frames together, you know, that, or repeat frames or something. So that punch, you know, actually, even if it didn't land well in uh, production, I can make it land well in post. I can make it land like with a snap. Like, you know, there's a couple times where I would jump to like a wide shot of the punch for a couple frames before I jump in. And people, I had people coming up to me, editors that were established that said, hey, I saw that what you did and I slowed down and watched it frame by frame <laughs> to see what you did. So again, uh, I don't mean to be so long-winded, but mm-hmm. I just have to, feel like like I, I think I've said that I, I don't think I was born to necessarily with the talent to do it but I practice but I also I guess the part that I'm sort of waffling on is I think there's a little bit of innate talent because you have to like kind of see what is not happening what is not working I'm get I get a lot of um requests to look at footage and like analyze and just say, or consult and say, well, what, what can we do here? Because it's not landing like we want it to land. Yeah. Does that sort of answer your question a long way? Sorry. No, it's great. I mean, and, and we will get to you, Josh, but uh, Breaking Bad is such a great example because that show, the pacing, particularly the first couple of seasons it's such a slow ramp, right? That over the course of such a long extended period of time, and, you know, I don't know anything about editing, but from a perspective of a viewer, it feels tasteful. Like, it feels, like, very restrained. Well, you know, I mean, people talk about it now like that, and they say, oh, you know, oh, you guys took your time. We got slammed for that at that time, too, though. People are like, oh, nothing ever happens. 
nothing, you know, it takes too long. I mean, you know, you can't please everybody. And, you know, I learned that a lot from Vince Gilligan because he would just be like, look, I got to do my own thing. A lot of times he would, you know, suggest we stay off the internet too. We're like, don't, don't read any of that stuff. Don't, you know, because, you know, he was just like, look, and, you know, and he never read, you know, he never would go on the internet, you know, but, you know, he'd be like, Cal, just stay off the internet because, you know, it's like, you know, we, we got to do our own thing. And, you know, again, yes, we're praised for that now, but man, we got slammed. Nothing. Oh, it never happens. Oh, it's just filler. You know, we got slammed <laughs> for stuff like that. It's funny because I was a real latecomer to Breaking Bad, so I didn't experience it when it was coming out. Um, but yeah, I mean, just massive props to you because I, I think that, that the skill of, of drawing that out and making those impacts so impactful is, is incredible. Um, Josh, bringing it back to you, um, what are your thoughts on whether editors are born or made? Here's the thing. I, I think that storytelling ability is where it all comes from, right? The core of it is the storytelling. So I don't think there's a way to really teach that sort of, yeah, that, that sixth sense that you have where if you're visual, like, look, we're visual storytellers, right? There's, there's people who like to put it on the page. There's, there's so many ways to tell a story, but I feel like if you, if you have that talent, you have that talent and all you're going to do is make yourself better and better and better. The more you learn as you go through it, like anyone can edit now because of technology, anyone can pick up a computer. You can do it on your phone. You can do it on an iPad. doesn't matter. You can edit, but it doesn't necessarily mean you can edit. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean you have that that ability to see the problems or see things to make, oh, I want to have a new technique here. Oh, I know it'll make this feel more intense if I do these tweaks. Everyone can try and do it, but it's like it's like anything. If I wanted to be a professional hockey player, I, I don't think I have that <laughs> innate talent to just be that. I was going to be honest, I've played hockey. I'm all right, but I am nowhere near a professional hockey player. My buddy likes to say, well, look, Everybody can drive a car, but that doesn't mean you can drive Indy 500. <laughs> yeah, it's a, and it's, and it's simply, and it's not like putting anyone down or anything, but it's like, I know my limits. I know what I'd love to do. And I know what kind of just comes naturally in the storytelling world. Now, great. There are people that are better than me. It doesn't matter. Like I'm not measuring who's, who's what it's because I've said it before in this industry and especially with what we do with what we do. You're always learning. You're constantly evolving. You're never a master of the craft. You're just getting better and better. And that's all you can really do. Add on the new tools, do new things, try new things, evolve your craft. But it's tough to say that you're born that way. You're just kind of born with maybe maybe a sense that isn't there when you're telling stories. And I think that's the key of it. It's not like you're born an editor. Maybe you're born a storyteller. You know, Maybe you're that kid who, when they come home, they tell their mom, everything that happened in their day in great detail. And they're just kind of like, as you're, as you're entertaining them. And then you realize, oh, maybe I can put that to something. Anything that you use as your medium can be what you use to storytell. So I think that you can be born with, you know, the sensibilities of telling a story to a big group of people and editing just, just happens to be one of those things that you use as your medium and learn on the way and then just build up. Cause again, it'll never end. I, I learned something new every I, Kel, what was, what did you, I'm avid. You showed me how to, to, it was the patch. It was to clear the patch and put it back. I just hadn't been using it. And Kelly was like, do that idiot. And I was I like, oh my God, this is the like greatest that, thing ever. So I know I didn't say that. Yeah. No, I no, didn't she did. say that. She did. But She's I like, probably showed him something that is one of those things that saves us a lot of time. And we've been working on this system for years. Yeah. 
And, you know, it's so simple. And he probably, I think I know what he's talking about. And he's like, like, it's just like the hugest revelation because it's just Instant. so simple. It was the like, avid reassignment. You reassigned everything. I used to just clear the monitor. I know, monitor I know and which I was one like, you're talking about. The other thing I was going to say, just kind of uh, bouncing off of what Josh said, you know, I think good editors have a sense of rhythm because in, in the, those are the things that we can, I mean, look, writers are the original storyteller. So we have to understand this, the narrative. We have to understand you know, who's important and who needs to be like, you know, have audience loyalty and at what time. But again, going back to something I saw the other day, the rhythm was just all off. It was just a ch- time was not attributed where it needed to be attributed to make this was an okay story, but it wasn't landing because things were like rushed or something like that. And so in those kind of ways, I think that is something internally. And also I did have a producer once. So I was working on a pilot and a producer, uh, writer producer sat was sitting behind me and she said, So Kelly, what do you think makes a good editor? And I mean, I didn't even hesitate. I said paying attention in English class. Because to me, if you don't understand metaphor, if you don't understand all those things that hopefully you learn you started to learn in seventh grade. I remember my seventh grade English class, I started to learn similes and metaphor and you know all those things that you know really are like underneath just your basic plot lines and stuff um if you don't understand that kind of thing i don't think you're going to make it really as a very pivotal editor you might be able to put things together but i mean even josh like josh worked on deadliest catch and that's just reality but he has to figure out what is the rhythm and what is, you know, what is the underlying, you know, narrative that we have to put together so our audience can go on a journey and understand the stakes of what's what's here. And in reality and in unscripted stuff, excuse me, Josh, you know, you really have to have your, you know, you really have to have it down. If you don't, you're just going to be a guy or a girl who just, you know, maybe can put shots together, but you don't really have a sense. So when, and and a lot of that comes into play when things are not landing, that's when this kind of stuff comes into play. When things aren't quite working, they're written, you understand they're on the page, the action is there, the emotion is there, but it just is not landing with an audience. So you as an editor kind of have to like say, hmm, what kind of changes can be made? And you know what? I got to say that a lot of those questions are questions that we get from the network, from the studio, you know, at that place, producers sometimes are like, can you just make it better? You know? (laughs) Turn up the better dial. (laughs) Yeah. as, as, As obnoxious as that question is, really... You have to kind of have the skill, not just in pushing the buttons, but in understanding what is underlying and what is not quite working. Because a lot of times you get that question or you get that note because people can't verbalize what they feel the problem is, but they know there's a problem. 
Well, it sounds like your jobs are pretty safe in this sort of AI apocalypse, given the fact that if it was as simple Man. as a formula, you know, you'd be out of a job, right? <laughs> oh, they, they all think that they can push the AI button. But I did ask on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, I said, what does the AI say when they say, can you make it better? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like what Define better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So let's drill down real quick before we get into Obi-Wan Kenobi. Let's drill down onto a particular part of the process that you go through, which is selecting takes. I'd love to hear your perspective on what works and what doesn't and why you choose one thing over another when it comes to selecting takes. Man, I, would, I, I think I would have to be on a panel with a bunch of people because I know that they would also say things that would go, oh, yeah, I feel that way. But right now I'm kind of drawing a blank. So I guess my uh, response to that right now without hearing suggestions is I just look for something that hits me in the heart emotionally. You know, like I'll bring it around to Obi-Wan if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Because one of the first things that Josh and I were working on was episode two of Obi-Wan Kenobi, where Obi-Wan is landing on this planet and he's in a very very busy sort of you know rough city area and he's chasing a uh, little princess leia and she jumps off this building and he knows that he now has to reveal that he's a jedi he's got to use the force he has to save her and he also doesn't know if he has the skill to do this, you know, so he's like, wait, I can't reveal that I'm a Jedi, but I have to reveal that I'm a Jedi. But can I do that Jedi thing anymore? I don't know. And I absolutely love this moment. There were so many tweaks and so many shots and so many angles. And it was a drag because Ewan McGregor is fantastic. <laughs> and the camera was in the perfect spot and the footage was just wonderful. And there was even like a little bit of focus buzz, which I love because it feels very real and feels very visceral and it feels very much like, and it feels very personal. I remember, and, and there were a lot of shots of, of the little kid, you know, her name is Vivian. They had a lot of shots of her. And they were like, there was just so much emotion with both of them. And I'm like, I want to use everything. <laughs> I remember Josh like saying to me, Kyle, you got to cut this down. And I'm like, yes, but I love that. And I love that. And of course, you know, once the director came in, she's like, we got to cut this down. And I'm like, yes, but this is so good. And this piece is so good. And so all that to say is that was probably one of my first in Obi-Wan, one of my first emotional things that had so much, so many stakes in it. And so it was loaded with so much. And, you know, it's like, and then you have the hand just, you know, twitching. And I mean, it was just, you know, and, and it was one of those things where like, I want to use it all. I know I can't use it all, but I've got to, you know, see what I can do, you know, use it all. And so, you know, for me, I got to say that, you know, I know it'd be kind of presumptuous to say that I know more than the, about the actor than the actor knows himself. And that's ridiculous. But in some ways, I know more about that actor's face and how their eye twitches or whatever than they know. And I think actors a lot of times, yeah, I, I know a few of them. I don't know many, surprisingly. But I know a few and I know a few well enough and 
I know that sort of the prevailing thought is you don't want actors in the cutting room, right? You never want actors in the cutting room because, you know, you don't want them to see themselves and then start to get self-conscious and then have that come into their performance later. And, you know, that I'm sure as an actor, that'd be hard to kick. But on the converse, it'd be great to have actors in the cutting room because you're like, hey, I want you to see what you do and why I'm choosing this. Or then you don't want them because they're like, I don't like what I look like there. My nose looks funny or my eye is doing weird things and they don't see what we see. And so, I mean, I, you know, have not really been, you know, in deep with an actor after something has come out. I mean, Brian, I I did talk to Brian Cranston a few times, but he never had a complaint for me. So, but, you know, that may have been protocol. That may have been, he may like have hated things, but, you know, he just is not going to come to us and say, oh, I hated what you did here. But I think that that's, you know, pretty much, you know, I'm looking for just emotion that means something to me and whether the actor remembers doing it, whether they feel like it was a mistake or something like that. I think that I've had a pretty good track record on my instincts. And so I have to keep going with those. Yeah. Same for you, Josh. Is it purely instinctive? Yeah. I mean, I agree. It's, it's, it's how you feel in the moment. It's, depending on what type of a scene you're doing, you know, the emotion of the scene, my world being in that unscripted world there, I also had a lot of, you're literally searching through footage sometimes to find that emotional thing that could put a nice little point on the scene that didn't exist before. So I'm very used to going through mounds and mounds of footage to find like a moment, try and try and find a silent spot where someone who's, you know, thinking about a terrible event that happened, you know, you want to find that silent spot maybe where they're just kind of thinking and you can tell that what is laying on them is heavy. I'm doing that. A lot of times I was doing that with like, you know, real footage of real people. So it's always, anytime I work on scripted stuff, I'm always like, oh man, this is nice because I get to now just look at this take or, you know, multiple takes and just worry about the emotion. It's, it's, I've always said, it's kind of like, you know, unscripted has got that swing in the bat with the weights on it feel, you know, you kick them off when you get to scripted for that type of thing. It's different muscles completely, but it is something that, you know, you spend so much time looking through nothing to find that one moment. And then sometimes there's, oh, here's five takes from this emotional scene. You know, which one makes you feel the way you want the viewer to feel? And you get to kind of go through and, and, you know, there were a couple of times in Obi-Wan in, the, in that early part of the fight where they're the the way Ben has to look destroyed, you know, just little things, even the way his hair fell or maybe he had a sweat just the right way right here. You know, it's like, you're not going to get those with Vader, obviously, the guy in a mask, because, you know, his <laughs> his look is the same every single time. So you kind of have to do stupid. But even with him, it was how high is the actor holding his shoulders? You know, how very... Breath. 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 Yeah. Like, is he specific? There's a, there's a part where, you know, he's holding up that rock because mm. Ben is crushing that rock onto him and he's holding it. And he so carelessly turns to him. And there was a couple of takes where he's, you know, he's trying, but there was that one moment where he, he turns, head turns, arm isn't putting any effort into it. And you can feel, oh shit. Like, you know, that's how Ben should feel. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm putting everything on this. And he's just like slowly moving. But those are the little moments you're looking for. And this wasn't any different just because it's, you know, uh, you know, Star Wars and there's, you know, sci-fi, you know, dev. Deborah Chow, who's the director, did an incredible job getting these guys to all have that, like, you know, 
there's nuance. You can find it. You know, there's there's a lot of setups. There was good coverage. So that was one moment for me that it was, you know, okay, there's a guy in a mask. I got to have a moat. And uh, here's a guy who's sweating bullets and looks horrified. Let's put those guys together and, and make people feel something, you know? So yes, I, I would agree. It's a gut thing. And everyone does have their own perspective because there's definitely things I put a little nuance in and then a dev would come in and go, yeah, that doesn't matter. Like, here's what I'm looking at. And it's like, oh, cool. Okay, great. Like that's, that's hers. It's her vision anyway. But she saw maybe something in a different shot where she's like, I like how he feels here. Totally. There's, that's the thing. It's, it's a perspective base. It's by your gut. And if your gut is different than someone else's, so be it. But you got to go with it. You kind of just got to pull with what you know. And then sometimes it's perfect. Sometimes it needs tweaks. This is probably a silly question, <laughs> but given the fact that you are so emotionally invested and sort of intimately connected with these, with the footage that you're working with, do you feel connected to the actors in a way? Do you do you feel like you oh like like we get to know yeah, them a little that, bit? That's the, that's the ultimate editor thing, right? Like we see them in the street and we're like, hey, what's going on? You're how you been? And you realize, oh my god, I was right. working in a room and you have no idea who I am. Like that's uh, for sure. You get to know them intimately and they have no clue who you are sometimes for the most part. <laughs> yeah. I will say that I, I want to just tweak my answer a little bit because I tend to get to know that character and right. that the actor may not be like that. You know, like I was working on Better Call Saul and especially in the first season where nobody really knew what better call Saul like in in post we didn't really know what the show was going to be we you know we only read scripts when they got them and you know and so we didn't really know what this was we knew that Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad was like you know this quick talker and but he was real different in Better Call Saul so we all kind of didn't know who Jimmy McGill was and I will say that all of the women in post-production sort of slowly kind of fell in love with this guy, right? We really <laughs> liked him, you know, and just kind of wanted to hug him and, you know, and I had met Bob Odenkirk maybe a few times, a handful of times, but only like very, very, you know, like very, from very far away. Hi, you know, nice to meet you. That was it. And I remember at one point, one of the producers, I can't remember if it was Vince Gilligan or Peter Gold, basically... You know, because I said, oh, you know, Jimmy, you, so, you just want to hug him. And they said something like, yeah, you better not do that to Bob Odenkirk. He's kind of <laughs> like, you know, and he's a really nice guy, but just a very private individual. He's nothing like Jimmy McGill, especially in the first season. And and it was just so different meeting him at that point, too, because he was very, very nice, but also very, very, you know, like, this is my space. And <laughs> you know what I mean? And. And so, again, it's not really the actor that I identify usually with. It's usually the character. And I have to keep reminding myself, I don't really know this guy. I know this guy, but I don't know. I don't know that actor. And I mean, even in like, personally, when I'm at home watching a show that I like or something, I have to constantly remember and not be disappointed if I see an actor on a talk show who their character is like super smart, super genius. And 
the actor on the talk show kind of really doesn't really have much to say. And you're just like, <laughs> you know, and so I, I kind of, I always have to remind myself and when it comes up, I'll remind friends. I'm like, you're in love with the character. You don't really know that guy, right? You know, so so I'm just tweaking my answer to, to Josh's a little bit because, yeah, I, gotcha. you know, but I will say it is kind of a, you know, kind of a mind blowing thing when you're working on something very intensely and then the actor might show up at your door and you're like, whoa, you're, (laughs) you're supposed to be in, it's kind of weird because it's like, you know, especially if I've had it where I've been working on something really, really intensely, you know, all of a sudden the actor will, for some reason will be in the building and just like, whoa, wait, (laughs) this is not, quite right so well ewan came in on his one of his many motorcycles and uh when he came in to do adr with us and that was always weird because it's the it's not obvious it's not obviously ewan's known for many things but it, it when you're looking at him with his long hair and his beard for so long and then he came in hair shaved you know beard gone and he's in regular clothes yeah. <laughs> you know he's, he's not in, like, Jedi he's just yeah, cool exactly. and he has to do adr in our in our kind of wonky setup, which was just in my band, a small microphone that we we had in the studio, you know, and his thick accent that isn't British, but it's like, yeah, it's it's it can it can <laughs> jolt you. We were like, well, okay, remember, remember, it's not the person. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you both worked on the finale, right, of uh, Obi Wan on Episode Six. So you've talked a lot about how you work individually. How do you work collaboratively? Do you just divide it up scene by scene and you're still working individually or how collaborative is that process? I mean, I think that we pretty much did do stuff kind of separately. I mean, because the the finale was just so massive and Josh and I had been working together for the whole series and, you know, Josh was doing a lot of cutting and I said, hey, so do you um, want to share this last one with you? You know, so we'll split it up and it was really kind of about i mean look josh is a huge like darth vader fan and i'm like go resistance right (laughs) you know so so i was kind of like i knew that josh really 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 wanted to do anything vader and i'm like fine but i also knew that you know, I, there were a lot of other, you know, plates in the air on that thing. I mean, we had to, you know, wrap up the Reva story. We had to, one thing that, that was really important to me, and I talked to Josh about it throughout our time on this series or, you know, on, on during production and post, was, okay, we know the rest of this story. This is not, we don't know this part of the story, but we know what happens later. And I want to make sure that this is very pivotal, everything that's happening here to Leia and Ben, especially, but Leia's a kid, and we know later there is no real reference to this time. So I want to make sure that we maintain the canon that is the later part of the story. Because And, and the wonderful thing that, that happened in the finale was when he tells her, I don't know if we'll see each other again, but we must never let anybody know. And I was like, oh, that's perfect because I was very, very concerned about, I mean, you know, I mean, for God's sakes, she escapes to a planet, she's kidnapped, she escapes to another planet, she jumps off of a building, he keeps her from falling, you know, then 
she's kidnapped by the empire and and um and, you know interrogated how does she not remember any of this right or it's never referred to so i was really concerned with that so those were things that narratively and metaphorically for me were really really important that we handle very very delicately i wanted to make sure that you know the audience understood the stakes being very high with princess with little princess leia that this was a very very intense and meaningful time in her life but one that needed to be you know treated with ultimate secrecy and that even as a 9 year old you know or 10 year i think i guess she was 10 years old even as a 10 year old she understood and the audience understood as well right and so I was trying to concentrate on things like that and also how important the Riva story was because in the previous episode, we just find out what her intention has been this whole time was to go kill Darth Vader. And now she is weakened. And now out of revenge, she's going after the boy. And I was like, okay, this is a very, this is all very, very, very intense. And so I was like, hey, Josh. You want to cut the beginning of the Ben, you know, Vader lightsaber thing? Josh like, you know, <laughs> he did exactly that, you know. So, so it was more like, you know, I was really concentrating on a lot of the other parts of the story. Now, I definitely did a good part of that fight, but definitely the beginning of it and sort of in the in the I think the little bit of the middle, I just handed it over because we had a lot of stuff coming in. And just so you know, in post-production, we were already working with our director on episode two and episode four. So we were trying to uh, wrap all that stuff up and work on episode six at the time. So our plate was kind of full. So that's how we sort of, you know, handed things over. Josh also, you know, was really instrumental in doing a lot of the, you know, tent music editing on all of the whole thing so his plate was very full as well so i just said hey you want to handle some of this uh this vader stuff and of course he jumped at it and we would take it yeah. back and forth we do uh, watch them uh, watching and and talking through and adjusting before deb would even come in it would be us uh, sort of how we want this to play and you know it was the, temp, the music stuff is always fun. I mean, we had Nick Fitzgerald, who's an amazing music editor as well. He was, you know, huge in all this. I would do my little things. Because in the unscripted world, you're kind of your own music editor. Like, you kind of have to score everything yourself. And, you know, the music is sort of laid out where it's, hey, I can cut this. I can chop this up and make this a score without having someone come in. So you work with the composer to have, like, these cues that are ready made. Obviously, scripted's different. It's going to be composed at some point but you have a music editor. So a lot of times I would rough things out and be like, Hey, and then he and I would go back and forth and he had these crazy ideas. Sometimes we'd be like, Ooh, way better than my takeover, man. <laughs> like you do it. But it was, yeah, it was a lot of, uh, watching and rewatching and, you know, tweaking and, uh, man, was it fun though. Super fun. The other yeah, thing too, with one thing I will say about music as well is as much as, and as iconic as, those uh, Star Wars scores are, we weren't really allowed to use them. We were basically tasked with temping it to sound like a Star Wars, but not use the Star Wars library. 
And that was, you know, by choice, you know, uh, we knew that we were going to have a different composer um, and Deb wanted to, you know, have a sound, but not, you know, the episode four sound, you know. It's fascinating, particularly the depth at which you go into every single decision that's made. It strikes me that with a project like this or anything in the sort of Star Wars universe, fans are going to pick apart every frame, every oh, second do. of everything. Oh, they yes. do. And they did. So, do you, when you're when you're so when you're working on something like this, do you have a sort of resident nerd that you can <laughs> question about stuff? Many, or, many, yeah. Yeah, guilty. I'm works. guilty. Josh was actually you, you my Josh was my first one. <laughs> yeah. Josh was uh, my first one. He definitely knew a lot. But you know, we had other resources. You know, Dave Filoni was working right across the way. Um, I think in a different building, so he was definitely a um, a resource. And um, there's a guy. You know, there's, there's what's his there's name? There's a guy. Pablo. What's his name? Pablo. 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 I can't remember his last name. Yeah, but I don't yeah, know if we should even say it. Let's who, just. Like, He's the guy. And uh, he was always there watching everything. Deb's assistant, Stephanie, at one point tasked him on just a frame. And they were like, what's this prop from? And he was like, stand by. And it <laughs> took him a day or so, but he found like the exact film. Here's the frame it was in. Here's where it's from. Here's what it was used for. Here's the alien race that would use it. And it's like, so they, they, they're, there's someone there to slap you if you do it wrong, for sure. And, and it's, and, you know, uh, even the props people had their, you know, their knowledge base. We we quizzed them on a couple of things. Remember, Kel was like, "Why why is the saber a little different here?" And why is this? And it's like, "Well, here's your answer." And then they would they would tell you. So if, if you if you have time to ask the question, they'll tell you exactly why things are the way. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, working on something like this, you know what responsibility you have. You know, like when I was first approached by Deborah Chow. My agent called me and said, hey, Star Wars wants to talk to you. I'm like, what? Why? You know, because I was just like, are you kidding? You know, but the one thing that that I loved that she, you know, really talked about was the drama. She was like, look, you're really, really, really great with drama. And we need that, you know, because I was like, look, I like Star Wars, but I just never anticipated them calling me. Um, and she's like, you know, you're on a lot of lists for Lucasfilm. And I'm like, really? Wow, that's pretty cool. But when I read the scripts, I was so excited because the drama was amazing and the the intrigue was amazing and the plot was really, really cool, you know, and and I could see how it was really, really deep in, you know, sort of the fallibility of Obi-Wan and what his faults were, what his self-doubt was, and his responsibility, and all these things that were super, super, super important to him. And this isn't just, you know, lightsaber battles. This is, you know, these are hot, very high stakes that we're having to deal with. So I felt a responsibility, and I was never really afraid because I knew that the Star Wars part of it was like that the safety net was there. And the only thing that I was concerned about is, have we gone too far away from Star Wars? But I don't think so. Um, definitely, I, I don't feel like, you know, a lot of times I'll like be like, oh, gee, you know, did that did that one ruin Star Wars? Did that one ruin Star Wars? Right. Because fans are really, really, really very, very like 
brutal. And, yeah. um, and I, you know, I also like how, you know, other, you know, the shows, The Mandalorian and or they have also delved very, very deeply into the trauma, you know, of it and, and gone into deep character, you know, and, and expounded, um, on those kinds of things. So my feeling is we always understood our responsibility in, you know, the scheme of the canon, but, you know, we got to play with a little bit more emotion than I'm used to seeing. And that was exciting mm. to me. And it's the benefit of that medium of television, right? That you can go that deep into character. Well, I don't know. I mean, you could do it. You could do it on film too. You know, it's just usually um, when things are done feature style, there's just a lot more money involved. You know, <laughs> there's a lot more money and a lot more time involved. But honestly, you know, I got to say that, you know, this thing was shot like a movie. It was basically a six hour movie. It was cut up into episodes and it was written episodically, but it was shot, you know, in, in some, maybe for a few weeks here and there, it might've been shot. Only one episode might've been shot, but I would say on the whole, it was pretty much block shot. Um, you know, it was, it was pretty much, uh, shot together, um, based on locations and actors availability and stuff. I know that five and six definitely were because, um, those two had Anakin Skywalker and, uh, ben Kenobi together in a lot of scenes. So they had to be available together. So finally, let's wrap up. What is your advice to those looking to get into becoming an editor for film or TV? I, I think that, um, Josh, you know, chime in here, but I'm going to start out by saying that, you know, the the path is not the same as it used to be when either of us got in. You know, you can still get in that way. We both I think I started as an assistant, Josh. I don't know if you were ever an assistant, but I think that there's a lot of people who are not assistants that kind of just start editing. They're either in film school and they meet a director and the director may get big and then they get big, right? And they've never been an assistant. And I guess in the way I will say that I think that that's really cool and very, very lucky. And I mean, that's a really great way to break in. I wish that had happened to me, but what I find is that when that happens, I think that there's a lack of empathy for everyone else that is underneath that has not gotten that path. And there's a lot of people like that now. You know, there's a lot of people who never were assistants. Uh, one of our good friends was never an assistant, and, and you know, he but he does have the empathy. <laughs> He's directing now, but but I find that you know when. You know, you don't in any business when you don't know the job that comes below you, that the amount of work that needs to get done so you can do your work, I think is really unfortunate. And I think that I think that you have a personal responsibility to understand the work that people have to do to get you to be able to do your best work. The production assistants, you know, I know it sounds like, oh, they just get lunch and do errands. That's a hard job. You know, it's I mean, they're out there in the heat and, you know, and the and, and it's like, well, you know, they don't get much for it for doing all that. But they come in and hopefully they got a smile on their face. And when they come in at four o'clock to ask you if you want Starbucks, you know, be nice to them, you know, and stuff. And, you know, so I, I think that 
that's one of the things that I will say is to to have some empathy for the people below you. If you were lucky enough to have legs up in this in this business that the normal path in is not uh, that you didn't take, you know, you didn't start from square one. Uh, I'll say that just in the beginning, um, Josh, you can chime yeah. in and then I'll probably think of something else. Same. It, it, the, I mean, same thing. It's I did the logging then the assist work, then got into, you know, editor up to supervising on some projects. And honestly, it's like, you know, I've always tried to treat people with same respect as if I was still that logger, you know, doing things. It's a team. And the big thing I tell every single time I talk to people is don't be a dick. This is 100% an industry that's based on wanting to work with a group. You know, if, if you're a dick, no one's going to want to work with you. It's just the truth. So be yourself. But if you are a dick, try to be someone else because, you know, obviously that goes against the first rule. <laughs> but um, but it's 100% the case. We, we, we're on teams, you know, like we're, you're collaborating with a group constantly. If you're a problem, no one's going to call you later. So that was something I also took into perspective. I treated everyone, even the ones that were jerks and I didn't enjoy working with. Hey, thanks. Have a great one. Hope you have a, you know, your next adventure is great. I'm never going to work with you again, but I will send you off thinking maybe we will, you know, that that's just how it is. It's, it's, it it will get you a long way because there's enough assholes in the industry. You hear about them all the time. Granted, somehow some of them keep working up. I don't know what the hell's going on, but you know, for the most part, if you, if you put your head down and you get stuff done, it will get noticed. And another thing is, you know, right now it's tough because everything's so remote um, I think assistants need to speak up more. If they want to be involved, it's going to be even harder than it used to be because you used to be in a room and there's a lot of times now where you're on remote. You know, we were lucky on Obi-Wan to be in a group. We all stood next to each other. We knew what people wanted. We knew all that stuff. But if you're in this, yeah, yeah. exactly. We were masked. So it was masked weird, the whole but, time. You know, but, you know, for the most part, it, if you're on a, you know, a remote team and you want to edit, talk. I mean, I'm on a show now where I don't really know what these I could ask them, but it's just not a lot of time. They need to show that initiative. So it's hard, but, you know, get that gut. No one's going to turn you down. And if they do, they're that dick I'm talking about. Ignore them. Don't go near them, you know? So, but if if you say, hey, I would like to try, there's always people out there. There's someone that's going to help or at least say, I know what, you, I know what you're going through. Come here. Let me show you. Or here, you know, call me afterwards. I'll, I'll, I'll show you some little tricks or I'll send you stuff. I mean, I, I consistently push that. Deadliest catch... I would say a good portion of my assistants eventually were up on an Emmy stage with me because I want them to succeed. I don't want them to feel like they're not, you know, uh, appreciated. I don't want them to feel like no one's listening. It's like your opinion is important. You just got to get through to those people. And, and you know, the, if, if they're cool, they'll help you. And then you've made a friend for life or then you've made someone who can call you later and go, hey, I got a job. I can't do it. You want to do it? You, you, you build your network that way. It's like we were talking about before. Don't be a dick. Enjoy the fact that we get to tell <laughs> stories for a living and enjoy the fact that we get somehow paid for it to go, hey, look at me. I can tell stories, everybody. I was born with a weird innate sense to tell them. So I'm going to I'm going to put them in pictures. But that's <laughs> it's it's weird. But that's what we do. And so, yeah, that, that'd be my main advice. Well, I love that. And that's the perfect way to end it. So thank you both of you, Kelly and Josh. Fascinating insight into uh, your work and particularly on Obi-Wan. So thank thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you for asking us. 
Thank you so much to Kelly Dixon and Josh Earle. This has been the Soundstage Insider podcast. My name's Jamie Muffet. I'm the host and producer of the show. This is an RPS podcast production. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, we're Soundstage In on Twitter, or should I say X, and Soundstage Insider on Instagram. See you next time.